The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last post just That's true, Dr. Zayas. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Because we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood and Company. All right, higher side chatters, we know the nefarious few atop the power pyramid are always up to no good consolidating power, siphoning off more wealth, and carrying out multiple campaigns against the people and the planet, all while leaving us largely in the dark. They've got a stranglehold on mainstream media, they're tightening the screws on alternative media, and the persistent truth-seekers we have left have to explore some rather exotic options to try and truly get a beat on what's going on behind the curtain. But exotic options are just the sort of thing we like around here, and today's guest is the man behind one of these options I've been intrigued by for many years. His name is Cliff High, and he's the guy behind the WebBot Project, a set of algorithms he's designed to crawl the internet for what's called predictive linguistics, which means interesting variations in the language which suggests what's going on in the collective unconscious that oftentimes results in a forecast of possible predictions. He also offers financial forecasts based off the WebBot data, which are purchasable at his website, halfpasthuman.com. Obviously, something like this isn't an exact science, but it's gotten a lot of attention when it's right, which is usually more often than not. And I, for one, can't wait to smell what the WebBot is cooking these days. Joining me for the first time, Cliff High. Welcome to the appropriately named Higher Side Chats. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it's going to be fun, I'm sure. Yeah, man. It is a real pleasure. I do enjoy these WebBot predictions. I know you've been doing this for quite some time. I'm sure a decent amount of listeners here are familiar with your work. But in the interest of leaving no man behind, outside of what I mentioned in the intro there, how do you typically explain the WebBot and its mechanisms to people who might not be too familiar? Uh, it depends on if I approach it from a technical viewpoint or from the woo-woo viewpoint, because <laughs> from the woo-woo side, basically what I say is that all humans are psychic. Most humans don't know they're psychic, but that psychic intuition pinging, so to speak, from universe has to come out. And so they leak it out in their language, whether they're aware of that or not, by which words they choose to use in specific instances. And I wrote software that goes on out and scoops all those up and tries to make sense of it all. Right on. Yeah, I, I like the woo-woo side of that explanation. I think there's something to that psychic ability. And yeah, a lot of people don't understand it or even know they have it, but we get deja vu, we get intuitions, and this is kind of a amalgamation of everybody's, right? I mean, at least the people on the internet. That's the theory. That's kind of the way it works, right? Because if you look at it, you know, you go every day, you get addicted to some behavior for some period of time. And so you get used to going to a particular gardening forum and discussing your petunias versus how, uh, you know, your azaleas and your zinnias. And then for whatever reason, all of a sudden you start talking about something else that's out of that context, usual associations for you. And that, that, in my opinion, is when one of these psychic impulses is trying to leak out. And so, you know, for whatever reason, you suddenly start discussing my, how the zinnias are as blue as the logo on a particular maritime company you happen to be aware of. And then, and I'm using, pulling this example, just, you know, it's entirely fictitious. But then two or three or four days later, you see that there's been a major incident involving one of that maritime company's assets, either a ship or a oil platform or something. And basically what was happening in those circumstances were that you were close enough to that actual event that the emotional repercussions of it all ripple through time, so to speak, and because of the way consciousness works, and your consciousness was trying to warn you, you know, the only way it could, and so it leaked it out through what we call psychic impression, and it did so changing your language, thinking you were smart enough to notice that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm totally open to those possibilities, and you do have a, a real long history with this. Can you tell us about maybe some of the greatest hits to give people an idea of the validity or the accuracy? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. There have been the very first prediction I put out was stated that there was going to be uh, it was when I was using my lexicon and tuning it up. So I didn't have a lot of words defined. And so I was somewhat limited by what I could forecast at that stage. But I said there was going to be a military accident and it was going to cause this kind of problems and change life forever. And it would happen within the next 85 days. And the odds favored it happening within the first week or so of that 85 days. 
And my math was reversed on that part, okay, because it, in the last week of that 85 days it happened, and that was the attack on the Twin Towers in 2001. Mm. And so I published this out in July of that year. And then I got another hit, really good one, shortly thereafter with the power outage in 2003. And then Costa Concordia was a really good one. About five months before that boat went off course, I wrote the thing up as blondes on boats causing problems, an international ship of state, all these descriptors for a cruise ship with lethal ramifications of running aground and so on. And it was difficult actually to determine at the time whether I was looking at data describing an actual ship or the ship of state running into a, a bunch of issues because there were some conferences going on in Europe at the time. But it turned out that the Costa Concordia had the top 11 decks were named after the original EU countries. And it was actually run off course by the captain theoretically being distracted by this blonde passenger on the bridge. And he took her way off course to go look at this island and ran the boat aground and killed a bunch of people. And so we had that one out five months before. I've been able recently to tune it to where I can really predict what's going to happen with the cryptocurrencies. So I've been able to predict the rise and fall of Bitcoin with a pretty astonishing accuracy, mm. especially over these last year and a half. It's an ongoing work in progress that is affected by basically by the level of emotional uh, excitement or agitation in the population as a whole. So these are obviously very fruitful times for me. <laughs> right. And man, it does seem like even when it doesn't predict a future outcome per se, it's definitely a good barometer for where the people's minds are at, what people are talking about. And maybe let's dive into where we are with this now. Since the economy does seem to be such a big part of the WebBot's predictions and also a big part of our lives, uh, what are you seeing in the data in that regard? It doesn't look like smooth sailing ahead, does it? No, we're at one of those giant inflection points that occur sporadically through history that the chartists and the cycle forecasters in the Wall Street world use as benchmarks, so to speak, for like historical patterns. So you can say that we're in one of those periods of times that emotionally will resemble the French Revolution which was the culmination, actually, of the economic impact of the Industrial Revolution disturbing the surf world that had existed prior to that and causing vast shortages as it was combined with the climate chaos and the loss of the wheat crops in Germany and throughout Northern Europe. And it caused the, ended up causing the French Revolution. And we're at one of those kind of times. Now, the French Revolution has to be kept in context because it was not alone. There was a period of revolutions that occurred, the Industrial Revolution, and then also the revolution within the colonies here in the North America. There was uh, revolutions at various levels throughout South America over the next couple of years. So it was one of those periods, and we're at the, that level of emotional intensity now. And what's bleeding it all off is the degradation of the financial system, the actual breakdown of the system that's based on what we call fiat or digital currencies that are issued by sovereign states and managed by small groups of people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are troubled times. The tension is palpable, no doubt. And I do know the Federal Reserve's Rockefeller Rothschild Fractional Reserve debt-based system of rule can't last forever, but they do keep managing to kick the can down the road despite the conspiracy world constantly crying wolf about collapse. How do we know this is more serious than the usual collapse paranoia we've heard from the conspiracy world for decades, really? Well, see, there's the thing. Collapse has been ongoing for decades. Mm. And we've been on a, I think it's been 30 years that we've been progressing downward towards 0% interest rates. If you want to wrap your head around what that means, it means the very end of the welfare state. It means the very end of any kind of free money from any government agency. It means the end of the food stamp program. And why? Well, because there's no vigorish. There's no debt-based gain to support those. So, for instance, the food stamp program has been paid for for many, many, many decades by dipping in basically to Social Security funds and the vigorish that they were able to earn off of having some money in there. Now we've got a situation where even if you owned bonds, you're not getting any yield off your bonds. So you own a bond, that's fine, but you're not getting the one or two or three percent that you need at a bare minimum just to keep that service going on an annual basis. You have a debt-based asset that provides no return. Without that level of return, then what must occur at that level of the social orders 
existence, and we're there now, that in order to support a socialist system under that circumstance and give out any kind of money at all to anybody, you must actively take it from somebody. So let me describe the situation. In the 1950s and 60s, because of the United States having conquered the planet in World War II effectively and gathered all the gold and resources unto itself and having 25% of our population own 75% of all the world's wealth in terms of real assets, gold, silver, production, capacity, everything. So we were 25% of the populace with 75% of the wealth. Now we're 25% of the populace. Uh, we're actually less than 25% of the populace, but we're at a point where we owe 75% of the global debt, mm. and we own that as our supposed assets. So, for instance, the single largest asset right now on the Federal Reserve or the government's books is not land or any of that. It's student debt. All right? And so the student debt is an asset that we'll never collect. So how are you going to pay for a social program such as food stamps or medical needs for people? when you try and collect on a debt that's not being paid. And beyond the fact that these students can't get work and, and thus pay the debt, and the debt is onerous and taken out under extreme circumstances anyway, we now have federal judges that have barred the even attempt at collection of that debt, thus basically nullifying the asset, the largest single asset of the Federal Reserve and the federal government. So Fannie and Freddie May, or, you know, the housing agencies within the federal government theoretically own most of the mortgages and all those are broke and worthless and they're not getting any great return off of those, especially as we're in this 0% rate environment where there's no yield. So under those circumstances, anybody with real capital, that is to say, people like myself that have worked for 30 and 40 and 50 years and have lived far below their means in order to save, even against this dwindling this rape of the savers that has been ongoing by the reduction of interest rates over this past 30 years, even under those circumstances, it has been possible to work your ass off and pay off your debt and accumulate. Only now, the very thing you've accumulated in, the dollar, is turning worthless. And so you must flee the dollar in order to preserve the capital you've worked so hard for over these last 30 years. And I'm not talking about people that are multimillionaires and business tycoons and stuff. I'm talking about the guy that, you know, owned what used to be the local gas station or, you know, the people that own and work at the local grocery store, this kind of thing. People like myself that have worked all their lives are in a situation where we're having to exit the financial system because it's crumbling away from us because there's no return for our having worked this long and hard. And at a very personal level, therefore, you are desperate for yield. The whole planet is starved for it. And so thus the rise of cryptocurrencies and the flight of capital from fiat issued by sovereigns to fiat that is self-issued or, or distributed or self-regulating, which is a self-governed on a software platform. Bear in mind that the fiat that's issued by the government, the dollar is 100% digital insofar as 90% of all of the people are involved in this country. They use plastic or digital dollars continuously and never touch real currency. So there's no difference. For them, other than you have a small group of people that are managing the dollar into oblivion, and then you have the large mass of humanity that's trying to convert itself into cryptocurrencies or something else as rapidly as it possibly can. So I think this defines an inflection point in that 30-year process of collapse to where we can say, yep, yep, for sure it died a few years ago, and now the corpse is really stinking and we're all getting the hell out of here. Hmm. Yeah, man, it does seem like economic musical chairs, and I guess the music is about to stop. And to get deeper into cryptos, I do find them pretty complex still. I've got a little bit. I've had guests mentioning Bitcoin on and off for years, and anyone who bought in the first few times it was mentioned on the show would definitely have made a healthy profit at this point. But even if you lost half of it, really, because it's gone up so much in the past few years, but what are your thoughts on Bitcoin at this point and cryptos in general? Maybe you could tell us about some other cryptos you're watching besides Bitcoin that have high growth potential, which... No, I'm sorry. I can't. Yeah, I can't do that. I've recently come to the decision I can't do that. I can talk about Bitcoin. I can talk about Ethereum because I've mentioned them in the past, but I can't mention anything else because coincidentally, my mere mentioning it causes market movements that I don't want to involve myself in, right? Because there's karmic repercussions here. 
I might casually mention something as I have in the past, and then people think, oh, oh, this one's going to go way up or you know, be long-term value or something like that. And, and it may be that you weren't listening appropriately or you didn't catch which side of the value proposition I thought that might be in. And so you might get burned if you thought it was long-term or that it was going to be a quick earner if you were wrong on which side. And so I want to be very careful about that in the future and let people make their own decision on their own research. And so what I'll do is provide that kind of thing in my reports. I can talk about the general trend of it and existing coins that you might bring up, I can comment on, but I'm not going to offer any new names or that kind of thing. Make sense? Fair enough. It totally does. Okay. These obviously are small markets, so they are volatile. But maybe I could ask you without any specific names, are there features of some cryptocurrencies that we should watch out for or could be potentially advantageous? Sure. Oh, that's that's yeah, that's real easy to, to discuss at that level because we're discussing it in an abstract that, that you can then use as a metric to apply to your own research. Exactly. And this, this is great. So first thing I always look for is to find out if the coin or the token is in any way associated with mining. So for instance, if you found a company that was doing some business offering a coin and it was in no way mined, it's a pre-mined or pre-issued coin, then I would be very, very, very leery of if it was a coin that was pre-mined and each coin was therefore and there, thereafter somehow associated or linked to some kind of a physical goods, like a bottle of wine or a chunk of gold or something, I would be very wary of it because there's all kinds of rules and laws still in place that allow those physical goods to be encumbered outside of your coin's theoretic encumbrance of that good. And so until you knew for sure that that coin was actually going to be able to make a claim on that good that supposedly backed it, I wouldn't get involved with it because, again, it's a management issue. Now, I actually personally favor coins where you've got the most possible chaotic discussion going on in the forums that support the coins because I know that you've got a passionate community, you've got a bunch of programmers that are hell-bent on solving problems that are related to that coin or technical issue, and that there's real growth potential from this. They may not succeed, because they may be going at the wrong niche or the coin itself may never get quite caught on. It's too early, too late in the process or something. But in my personal opinion, such chaotic forum discussion kind of things around coins or tokens, those areas are much more likely to be long term than are individually managed, even in corporations or consortiums, pre-mined or non-mined coins. Hmm. That makes sense. That's great advice. And have you come across any of these coins? I've had people send me a few of them that are almost structured like pyramid schemes in a way. Like you're supposed to get other oh, people sure. to invest. sure. There's dozens of those. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got to watch out for that. There's also a bunch of those where they try and figure the multi-level marketing and they're explicit about it. And it's like, no, you got to run from these things. Run as fast as you can because you're going to get caught out. There's this rule I had pre-internet, Okay. And the rule was always good for me, and it was always uh, uh, it proved itself exact all the time. Uh, pyramid schemes have been around ever since the pyramids. <laughs> and so they came up in the 70s. There was no internet, so they had to spread by word of mouth or phone or something like this. And so my rule was, by the time I've heard of it, it's about ready to collapse. <laughs> so sure enough, anytime any of my friends called me up and said, hey, hey, we want you to join this, and it was a pyramid scheme, I would tell them, run, 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 get out as quick as you can. It's about ready to fall around your ears. So if you were to send me such a thing, I would assume that by the time it reached me, that it's very near its peak and it's about ready to fail on its own. As we're talking now, I recently ran a scan and I was able to find 862 things I could identify as a crypto coin or a monetized token. And so that's more than there were yesterday, but a lot of those that were there yesterday are not there and they've been replaced by new ones. It's going to be this way and it's going to be chaotic for a long time. This will offer a great many people over a number of years a chance for a good potential for profit, but also a good potential to really crap out because they picked the wrong one because they didn't do any research on it. So I expect that there will be a larger number of people crapping out than profiting. So if you're going to aim for the former of crapping out, you've got a good chance of being able to do that. But if you're going to aim for the latter of trying to make some money at it, you're going to have to really do some research and sharpen your brain on it. It's not really that difficult. It's just simply work. Mm -hmm. Right. Great advice. And people out there, be careful, but don't totally avoid it because I do think this is the future in a big way. Oh, well, look at look at some of the things you can do about it. OK, so let's look at some of the really cool stuff. 
We have Bitcoin, which is a method of exchange between the two of us. It's also a store of value. It's also a currency. As a unit of currency, we can break it down infinitely. It's, we can also smoosh it back together again so that we can build it back up. It stores easily. You can take it with you, and, and it has all these really cool things, and it's encrypted, and it's sort of anonymous. And then we have another thing that also runs on a blockchain, which is called Ethereum. And the Ethereum environment provides us with these Ether tokens that are basically like train passes, a pass to ride a train. Because on the Ethereum platform, the Ethereum coin is not only a store of value, it's not only a medium of exchange, it's not only a currency in that sense, but it's also a fungible good that you can smoosh together and break apart again as you need to. And it's also a consumable good in that you can use it to power robots on the Ethereum platform that then allow you to make money off of it. Now, I'll give you an example in half a second. These, um, these robots are made by writing software that is run through these compilers, and it's usually in a language called Solidity. Do it online on free so Solidity compilers. Teach yourself how to do that. Or you can you know, get plugins to uh, Visual Studio from Microsoft even, that kind of a thing. And you write these little robots, and what they would do, I'm going to write one um, in the process of it now, that's going to be a kiosk. And what it's going to do is to take the information I do from my research, and it's going to put it into a format that I can put into these robots and release into this Ethereum platform. Now, bear in mind, my customers are going to interact with this kiosk from a web page. So they're not going to see any of this stuff behind the scenes. But what's going to go on behind the scenes is that they'll pop into the web page to buy one of my reports, and it'll say, what currency do you prefer to deal in? And it'll offer a whole plethora of choices. Because basically, my currency choices are going to be limited to what I can exchange them for, ultimately to reduce them down to Ethereum or, or Bitcoin in the process of the, of the robot. But I don't care if it's any of these other coins that we might mention, as long as it's still trading and had value and we could compute it out to the cost that the robot can do this math. No worries. It'll accept it. Then it'll instantly change it for whatever. And it'll do all this and I won't have to mess with it. So basically, it's the lazy person's way to sell things because then I'll put my information in there. And this is the beauty part that I really like is that I'll put it in there in a format that'll make it very easy for the machine to say, what human language do you want to receive the information in? And then it'll provide them with a uh, link to a translated version of the information. So if you want to see it in Korean, no worries. You can purchase and buy and the whole experience will be in Korean. And if you want to use a particular coin, the whole experience will be in that coin and, and it'll be transparent to you. And it'll be transparent to me because all I'll have to do is design the interface once, plug the robot into the back end and let it loose. <laughs> Beautiful, man. Sounds uh, like you're on to something. Well, yeah, it's not just me. <laughs> I mean, there's millions and millions of people out there that are doing this sort of thing. And the, the cost of entry is very low. People can teach themselves how to do coding and write these, uh, what they call them, smart contracts. But if you think of them as robots, it's a whole lot easier to grasp what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a ton of potential out there for people who are paying attention and getting in front of it rather than waiting for it all to smack them in the face. Well, there's also, I get real examples all the time. So just one more real example here. I got an email just the other day from a guy who's been able in the last week, I think it was, to pay off his student debt and his car loan based on following some of the advice in one of my reports or one of the guides. I don't give advice. And he was able to purchase cur the currencies and sell them out at the appropriate time and then converted them to dollars and went and paid off these two major debts. This is such a unique time in history that had this time not existed, had uh, cryptocurrencies come along, the odds on this man being able to achieve that at his age, you know, are infinitesimally small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should definitely look at the positives in this era of change. And I wanted to get into some weird stuff, too. Clearly, we got a sure. lot of weird stuff going on in the world, no doubt. Uh, I heard you talking about Antarctica fairly recently. It's been something a lot of listeners are curious about right now. We've talked about John Kerry's visit right around election time. Also, Buzz Aldrin needing to be medically airlifted out of there. But we also have Newt Gingrich going down there right after the election as if he was the liaison between the new administration and whatever the hell they got going on down there. Based on the few clues we do have, can you tell us more about the goings on in Antarctica? I can give us some more clues, okay? There are some areas that I haven't formed conclusions on yet, but we have more clues. The Newt Gingrich thing, I think that's precisely what it was, was that as the new administration came in, they had to have a new ambassador to whatever the hell it is that's going on down there. 
And some of the other clues we've got now include a big ramping up of the number of jobs that are available, the amount of money being put into the corporations that are down there, the number of corporations that are now allowed to do business there, the amount of passes that the military is handing out to the number of people, and so on. So we're looking at a, at a ramping up of a very major operation. There's hints that very large tracts of land in Australia are now being prepared for something. There's also hints that port areas and coastline in New Zealand is also involved. Then the hints come in the form of corporations that are making movements in the acquisition of land and other facilities. And also the importation into Australia of electronic gear and this kind of thing and new, basically what amount to new cargo routes. So something is up. The ramping up level may yield an order of magnitude increase. We just don't know. It's currently ongoing. This is curious, though. We knew it was coming, but this is curious because, of course, it's the winter in the uh, southern hemisphere. So the expectation is, or the, the, the one conclusion I have is that the prepping that they're doing now is for some big push as soon as it becomes clement weather Antarctica. So that would be like Antarctica's upcoming spring. And so they were preparing for something. Now, whether we'll see any real manifestation of it here in the United States or wherever, and we're paying for all of this, I don't know. But I do know that we're now approaching a point where it's a mathematical certainty that we'll soon have a fairly large population of returning people from various chores or tasks in Antarctica. So we may start getting people that are going to spill out interesting information in larger and larger amounts as we go forward. Mm. Yeah, man, I am uh, really excited about the potential there. And some conventional ideas suggest that what's going on is resource mining or oil, but those really aren't the companies that are down there, are they? That's quite correct. And the issue there is that it's not oil, it's coal. They have found vast quantities of some of the purest coal on the planet sitting in huge mountains in a mountain range as though it had already been mined and was cleaned and carefully piled up into these things that are five and 6,000 feet high that you and I would think of as mountain-sized foothills. It's so clean that you can just literally truck on over there with your bulldozer or walk over by hand and pick up this coal and uh, it's no dust or anything. And so it, it just boggles the mind. And there's more coal there in one of these mountains, it is estimated, than is the energy requirements of the United States for 200 years. All energy requirements, not just electricity, but also the ability to convert coal to oil, even inefficiently, we'd be able to have all of our energy needs completely covered by the really cool coal out of Antarctica. But that's not what's got them all excited, because as you note, it's much more high-tech companies that are down there and not people that are going to be buying a lot of caterpillars. <laughs> right. I, I've obviously heard Boeing, but then I've also heard you mention SAIC is down there, which we've talked about them before. Apparently, they're at the center of a lot of UFO stories and also seem to have worked and tested out some exotic electronic harassment technologies here in San Diego, according to a book by Robert Guffey. But this is a major indication that this might be UFO or alien related, potentially, right? I think so, personally. And I also found it very curious that it's not simply SAIC. Now, what actually occurred was that SAIC took its core divisions that had been there ever since its UFO inception period in the 50s, and it took those core divisions, and they've been repurposed under a new corporate name. And all the other, basically, it was SAIC, which owns all this other crud and is involved with all these other kind of things, took its core central function group, rebranded it as Lados, and has given the rest of that stuff off to a, another subgroup to deal with and has now focused their core science group on Antarctica. And this is, this is a huge shift because throughout the 50s and 60s, these people were involved in contracts for the federal government almost exclusively or some other subcontractor of the federal government. And insofar as we were able to determine, perhaps as much as 70 or 80 percent of it was all UFO reverse engineering stuff. Mm. Yeah. And now they're focused on Antarctica. <laughs> That's definitely something to look for. I mean, there's also that picture going around of the UFO and the ice. I'm not sure if that's legitimate or not, but do you have any <laughs> no, thoughts it's, on that? No, it's actually not. It's, um, <laughs> it's a lake. The photo has been reversed top to bottom in order to cast the edge of the lake as the edge of the spaceship. Okay. Ah. Now, here's the thing. 
Okay, so let's let's get into some deep woo-woo here for a minute, all right? Yeah. So I'm doing my my work, let's say 2012. I mean, I've had Antarctica stuff in my data since 2003 and or earlier and have been reporting on it ever since then. Well, actually, since the very first report. But it showed up with seriousness around 2003, and it grew for a number of years, and then it just almost sort of vanished. So no real reports of it through the, say, 2007 through nine. And then it starts getting ramped up again. Well, around three or four or five years ago, I started getting this ramp up of Antarctica being associated with all of these very high-tech company names and then also with industry as well as scientific devices. So, for instance, I would just get these weird associations of Antarctica and scanning electron microscopes or tunneling, scanning tunneling electron microscopes. And those are not something you would usually use to investigate ice. And so it was just odd that there was these associations of these rather strange scientific devices going to Antarctica. Not odd per se, because that's all Antarctica used to have associated with it was basically the military and science. And then there came out the rumors of the films of what were made in the 70s of the discoveries of these mountains of coal and so on. Anyway, so as I say, in about 2012 through 13, I started getting a lot of reports in my data more connections to the woo-woo side of things. And I thought, ooh, this is really interesting and started really pouring through it. I started reporting on it. Then I ran into this very curious situation and I couldn't really decide what was going on. And the situation was that it was almost as though there was an echo or an amplification of the stuff I was writing about that was not being scrubbed out by this thing I called MOM. Okay, I have this thing that MOM, model of model space. And every time I write a report, I take all the words that I've got associated with that report and I dump it into mom, which and mom is a robot and mom supervises the spiders. And whenever it finds any of an echo of my own words and stuff, it it throws it into a, the dustbin of our processing, so to speak. And we just don't involve ourselves with it. So no securitist references because I ran into that with the very first report I did in 2001. And it took me like six months to overcome the problems caused by people reporting on my own work showing back up in the next run. And so I finally was able to come up with mom and work that out. And then mom started, I thought, running into some serious issues in 2012, 2013 realm. Oh, no, excuse me. That would have been 2014 and 15. Very end of 2014 and into 2015, I started getting more echoes than I was used to and having to slice out and do more manual editing on some of the woo-woo data coming in for the space goat farts entity. And a lot of that was Antarctic-based, and I was somewhat disappointed because I was throwing out a lot of data that I couldn't tell if it was good or bad. But I didn't want to be bringing up anything that was spurious, especially if it was a repetition of words I'd already put out onto the Internet, and thus I would magnify the effect. And a long story, and eventually it comes down to me having to write all these extra chunks of code and put in stored procedures and triggers into my SQL database to catch all this stuff. And I finally realized, well, geez, this is coming at me from all of these different directions. And I realized that this past year, and I made some attempts to figure out what was going on by putting stuff into my reports in particular ways that I thought would interact and cause certain repercussions in these echoes. And sure enough, it did. And lo and behold, I was able to source the echoes, and it turns out to be this marketing group behind this individual by the name of Corey Good. Mm. And what they were what they were doing was, and causing the problems for me was they were reading my reports and echoing the words back out uh, into their own audience and into their own marketing stuff. And it was showing up in context that I was not prepared to see my stuff show up in. And so I didn't have filters already prepared for it, right? And so mom was not able to catch it. Some of it was coming through and causing these amplification of certain emotional things that were all out of whack with everything else that was coming through. And so I saw it building and then I started, okay, this is interesting. Now what I needed to do was, as I say, perform that experiment. And I ended up tracking it down to this Corey Good guy as the front end of this big giant marketing campaign. So if I know, for instance, that a particular theme in Woo Woo is going to be used for a movie, I preload mom with that to screen out all the, the PR crap that's going to be coming out about that film. And so if we had, for instance, you know, alien giant mushrooms in a film coming Well, I preload mom to screen out any of our data that was related to alien giant mushrooms over this period of time, because very likely it's part of this. 
But if it showed up two years later, it might be, a, you know, your mind trying to get you to think about this old idea you had in order to get new information out. So we've got to be careful about that. Sort of makes sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Anyway, it, it was a pain. It was a royal pain and all kinds of stuff. And I've got to retune the, the lexicon, which brings us back to the Antarctic stuff, right? Because mm -hmm. I've got tons of it. I'm reluctant to release any of it anymore because these bozers are out there causing me problems with amplification around this subject specifically. And I was able to amplify them up by putting in stuff in the reports and then one month after the next, after the next, accurate data. I mean, data that showed up in my processing. It had already, I'd already tumbled to the fact that something was going on. I didn't know who it was. But so I'd put in uh, three separate memes with specific wording that caused certain things to occur. And I now know what's going on. But now it means I've got to go back and basically make all these filters permanent, go and change all these state variables and temporal variables to account for this for the long term because we're in this big brouhaha as their giant marketing scheme comes unraveled. And the repercussions are going to go on for years. And I'm like really irritated. I mean, I'm mm. sorry. I don't, don't mean to vent, but it caused me a whole lot of work at a time I didn't need it. Oh, I get it. I mean, personally, I've always liked the idea of a hollow earth or beings below the surface. And because I always say that, a lot of people have been pointing me to Corey Good and David Wilcock because of the super sensational tales they've been talking about, which do tie in to the hollow earth. But I find it to be a bit too sensational, which some people might think that's a catch-22 based on some of my previous guests, but I still do. And I mean, you have made a pretty big splash being very vocal about thinking the same thing, which uh, I'm right there with you. Well, I was driven to it because I normally I don't pop my head up and pay attention to what's going on in the woo-woo community at a personality level. I just don't have the time. So it took me a while to tumble to these guys, and I didn't realize they'd been out operating at this con this confidence game for over a year and no wonder i'd had problems for over a year because you wouldn't believe where i was getting this stuff from gardening forums and i mean even deep military stuff that that you know anyway even on the dark web this stuff was showing up and it was because no one was calling bullshit on it that it was becoming amplified to the point where people had contacted it for the first time and they couldn't find anybody seriously debunking it anywhere and so they assumed no one could debunk it ergo it's actually solid as opposed to it just being, I think, you know, a marketing effort where they attempt to squash people saying, hey, this is full of crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. And I guess since we're kind of on that subject, let's talk about our place in the universe a bit, because you do describe the sun and moon and space all pretty differently than it's presented to us in school and in the mainstream, which isn't surprising. We've had a lot of guests break down many different ideas, but can you talk to us about your model a bit, where you see the sharpest breaks from the traditional teachings when it comes to uh, our composition here? Sure. Uh, a lot of my stuff comes from some work that was done by a bunch of Hindu mathematicians in the early 1900s, say uh, late 1880s through 1940s or so. And they discovered by thinking and performing some thought experiments as well as some physical experiments that we can all perform ourselves, that we don't have a heliocentric solar system. So our solar system, for instance, we're not orbiting, nor has the Earth ever orbited around the middle of the sun. Okay, we don't orbit its ecliptic, nor does any planet. And this can be easily proven to ourselves because if that were true, we would only ever be able to observe most of the other planets very, very, very infrequently because the light of the sun would obscure them and ourselves from being able to see these other planets. We'd never be able to see any of the inner planets except for when they crossed between us and the sun and they would show up as a black dot. We would only be able to see those outer planets that happen to be directly behind us in a cone that's approximately 18 degrees wide, that it would basically be the area that would be shielded by the light from the sun if we, in fact, orbited around the helios, around its ecliptic. So we actually trail behind the sun because the whole model of the, of the universe is comets. We know our sun is moving, it's progressing in a direction. We don't have any idea of the direction it's going north, south, east, west. It's all meaningless in space, but whatever direction it's going, it's moving like at over 7,000 kilometers a second, and it's burrowing through whatever it is out there. And whatever it is out there is not vacuum, because as the sun progresses through it, the sun is reacting to material that is coming in around the sun that we perceive and can sample as these basically ionized gases gases at different densities and different complexities. 
Our sun is not a giant nuclear reactor that's going to go on forever, fueled by internal nuclear compression based on the compression of hydrogen. In fact, it probably has zero to very little hydrogen in it at all. It's primarily composed of ferrite, gold, silver, and copper. And the ferrite is the, the largest amount of it. It's probably about 3,000 degrees Kelvin. So the surface of the sun itself is very cold. So when we get a sun spot, what we're actually doing is looking through the plasma at the cold iron underneath, the black ferrite surface underneath. And the plasma is caused by this iron being shoved through these ionized gases, very much the way you would have a tungsten tip in an ionized gas in a TIG welder causing this arcing in the plasma. And that's what's going on around the sun is this plasma. And the plasma is actually currently retreating, condensing for reasons we don't know, down from about 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, to about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit in terms of its temperature, leading us into an ice age period. This contraction of that envelope is about 125,000 years since the last time it happened, which is about 25,000 years overdue insofar as the thinking of the people who study this. In coincident with that, we have the two largest planets in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, in alignment relative to our own path in the solar system. Now, we're all trailing behind the sun, like debris in a cometary field being drugged behind it. And this is what accounts for the uh, retrograde motion of the planets. No planet would ever appear to be retrograde to us ever under any circumstances if we were orbiting the ecliptic of the sun. If we orbited the equator of the sun, no planet would ever show up in any way, shape, or form as retrograde. And the fact that we can see all planets continuously means we don't orbit the middle of the sun, whether we're back behind the sun being drugged behind it. And so this is why we get retrograde motion. As the Mercury, for instance, spirals behind the sun, it sometimes appears to be going backward from our viewpoint. But if we were to transpose that into a two-dimensional image, it would look like a zigzag. And so you see these zigzag Mercury eclipses or Venus eclipses of the sun. And that's actually the spiral being captured in a two-dimensional form by the cameras we've got looking at it, which prove that we're all being drugged behind the sun as cometary debris. We know that the solar system itself has some kind of a shell around it that's composed of something that is gaseous, so to speak, but has enough radiation and energy in it to prevent our explorer ships from ever leaving our solar system. So they're kind of like trapped in the cell walls of our solar system. We also know that the only vacuum that exists is directly behind the sun. And the further you get out away from directly behind the sun, the more you encounter the stuff that is in the space between stars. And we also know that our orbit, our position behind the sun, we're falling further behind that ever so slightly behind the sun because the earth itself is growing larger. It's growing larger because more energy is coming around the sun, coming through that plasma unaltered in the form of gamma rays and other cosmic radiation we can't identify. And it's getting caught by the plasma core that's in the middle of our earth, which is making more material, more hydrogen, oxygen, oil, zinc, tungsten, etc., and pushing the earth further and further apart in the plates as it makes more stuff deep in the middle of the planet and it's got to go somewhere. And so in addition to the earth getting larger, the effect of Jupiter and Saturn are also on a 402-year cycle that out to 425 years, and it's causing a mini ice age on its own, and all this stuff is combining right at this moment. <laughs> and we mm -hmm. sit here and talk about cryptocurrencies. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Man, it's so interesting. I've seen um, computerized models of that composition, like this corkscrew spiral pattern following the sun through space. I am curious, though, if that is our structure, wouldn't we see greater differences in regard to celestial alignments or the constellations per procession? They seem pretty stable over thousands of years if megalithic site alignments are any thing to be considered of any value in this area. We will see that, but bear in mind, it's going to take uh, much more than a single processional cycle for us to see any deviation from that. So for instance, it would take perhaps two or 300,000 years, maybe 10 processional cycles, maybe, you know, 260,000 years to see even a 1% deviation caused by the position of the sun moving relative to some huge fixed star, North Star, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it takes millions of years for us to shift from one pole star to the next. And it has occurred. Vega used to be the pole star. Right. So, you know, now we're in Polaris. 
And so, in fact, we do know, though, that this has impacted humanity. How do we know this? Well, if one looks into certain aspects of archaeology, you can find that seafaring peoples, both on the Atlantic and into the Southern Oceans, and in the Pacific and into the Southern Oceans, specifically the Southern Oceans, noticed changes in the navigational stars and made note of these changes about 4,500 years ago. And it was over the course of about eight or 900 years that that change occurred. And it was necessary then. So they, are, they needed to have a degree of refinement that you and I don't need, okay? These guys were in the, in the South Pacific were trying to find islands where they were separated from other islands by death in the water because if you didn't find it, you died. There was, you can't live on the Pacific Ocean. It's a desert. And so you got to live on the little islands. And in order to find that island, you had to know where you were within a few feet. And so their navigational stars had to be really precise at a level that the pole star per se doesn't have to be or any of the other ancillary stars. So most of us are not going to be aware of the continual nature of these changes that are going on. But the uh, South Pacific Islanders, over the course of 800 years of sea songs that were their navigational way of transmitting that knowledge from generation to generation, noted how certain stars were changing. The personalities that were given to those stars were noted in this change, and they followed them, and then they noted that they stabilized. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is a great point. And, of course, we are talking about a massive, massive scale. It's really hard to get your head around, but we should assume that all stars are moving in the same way ours is, right, or, or not so? Uh, we should assume that they're all moving. Let's not say way because it implies a direction, and we don't know that they're all moving in any way, in <laughs> any fashion, close to, to the directions of any other stars. But we think that that's sort of the, the case, because if you look at the Milky Way galaxy, all of the stars seem to be going in this big, uh, you know, a circle, this big uh, loop around the what we think of is more or less the center of the galaxy, where there's a whole lot more stars that are moving a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem like spiral and rotation is some fundamental, basically, technology. If you wanted to get into the Nazi bell and UFOs, it just seems like there's a force that is kind of left off the books in physics that has some interesting properties involving rotation. And it does seem to be kind of fundamental to our structure. So I, I I see how it, we could be moving in that kind of a spiral pattern. And it's, you know, it's, it uh, goes back to Victor Schauberger, and he was the one that theoretically or supposedly anecdotally came up with the breakthrough that allowed him to do the implosion engine for the Nazi bell. And he based it on implosion science. We've been close to this before. A guy by the name of Keeley in the U.S. in the 1800s built these implosion devices, not internal combustion engines, but internal implosion engines. And he was running locomotives on them. They were so large. And they were basically, we wouldn't think of them as zero energy devices, but they were very low input for very large output devices. And they were non-polluting and so on. And of course, they were snatched up. And on his death, all of those were purchased, except for a couple of the ones that were left out. I think some key elements were taken out of them, but in, and they disappeared into the bowels of the Smithsonian. But if you call them, they've never heard of the chap. <laughs> Of course. We've heard that before. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So is it your contention that the moon is the one body that is in an actual true orbit around something? No. I mean, there's there we have stuff orbiting us behind the sun, certainly. What's interesting about the moon is that it's always self-correcting its orbit. Right. That's kind of what or I was it getting is, it to. Is correct, it's always correcting its orbit. Whether it's doing it or it's being guided is uh, open to question. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. I mean... I've heard the moon is artificial. I've heard the moon is hollow. Hollow seems a little bit easier to quantify than artificial, but I'm not so sure. Do you think it's possibly more of an ancient, abandoned observation craft, or do you get any indication that it is still active? I guess this correction would indicate some kind of activity. Yeah, it's ancient. We know that the debris on the surface of the moon is older than anything in our solar system. The likelihood is that the moon was brought here. We know it's active. Some people on Earth probably know by whom and, and with what, but the rest of us are just left with stuff going back to the invention of the telescope and the notations that we've seen since the late 1700s or 1800s, early 1800s, of uh, moon flashes and, and ships across the moon and all of this kind of thing. So we've been observing them for several hundred years. We know it's ongoing. But nobody in officialdom is willing to discuss it. But it's quite factual that the moon is hollow. I would argue that you really can't have anything that's going to be hollow 
as large as the moon without it also being artificial, even if it was partially hollowed out and then stuff put into it. However, this one appears to be quite observationally just crafted out of, you know, some kind of sheet metal or something. And then it's just accumulated a lot of debris on the top of it ever since. And, you know, the whole idea of it ringing like a bell every time we hit it with anything from down here is very interesting. And especially since it took five and a half hours, the time they popped that little tiny bomb off on it, uh, five and a half hours for it to settle down. And there were also indications that just from the seismic activity that was going on, that you could almost map out an internal tetrahedral structure, which curiously looks a lot like the same kind of thing you see in Iapetus, one of the moons with the most strangest of what we can call orbit, because it is this weird swinging back and forth, looping over its own trail while still keeping up with the rest of the mass. And it's not even really an orbit. It's this sort of weird figure eight thing. So there's all kinds of strange stuff in our solar system. And see, this is why, at its core, the woo-woo stuff is all accurate, okay? And at its core, maybe even a third of what Corey Good mentioned is accurate, mm -hmm. all right? But none of it he experienced. All of it he is replaying out of what he's been told to say is not his own experience. He's just built a narrative around stuff that is quite factual. And the factual stuff is that, you know, our military knows things that it's not telling us. And if they are, if our military is not out there flying these little triangular things that I see with the, the goggles, then someone should tell our military we're in a real world of hurt because somebody is up there doing stuff that we don't know about. <laughs> and so it's one of those deals. They either can plead ignorance or incompetence. Let us please hope that they're going to plead ignorance and they really do know what's going on or are in fact are causing it because there's so much activity going on. So a lot of this stuff is accurate. There's a secret space program. I see the thing, and no one talks about it, thus it's secret. And indeed, we may even have all these strange things like, you know, giant cavernous rings that people used to inhabit out around the planets. All of that stuff may be quite accurate. But the way in which it was fed back caused me all kinds of problems. And the fact that they didn't acknowledge that they were spinning a, a narrative out of, you know, the various flotsam and jetsam that litter the woo-woo world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I definitely think there's a secret space program out there. I've just heard too much. I mean, ever since Gary McKinnon, it's been pretty obvious that they've got things going on militarily related to space that are far beyond what they tell us about. And that was a while ago. Correct. And and the, the what really irritates me more than anything, I think, is the lack of knowledge. I mean, I, I don't know if I would sleep better at night or not knowing what these guys know. You know, I mean, if I knew there were giant hairy spiders out there that are flying spaceships trying to get me. I don't know if I really need to know that at this point, right? <laughs> but at the same time, it's irritating that somebody knows it and I don't. And if there are these guys, well, I want to think about ways to maybe get back at them, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I want, I, in other words, you know, it's my planet too, and I want to involve myself in it. And, and it's also my planet's atmosphere. And if you guys are doing things in it, then I've got a right to also participate in this at whatever level I can. So I find it very irritating now. On another practical level, I see that the marketing effort and everything that's been put into this is symptomatic of a lot of the stuff that's going on in the financial system, the political system, the social order in a lot of different ways. And the symptomatic nature of it gives me a great deal of hope because I know when it is expressing itself in these other areas, financial, political, social, etc., it is, again, pointing to a huge inflection point and a, and a major change currently underway. So the mere fact that someone felt that they had to promote the marketing group that was behind Corey Good and get them to do this at this time means that they're very much afraid of what's actually going to be coming out. And they were trying to muddy and the waters and control the ebb and flow before that occurred. So this was a very good sign. Once I tumbled to what was going on, the fact that the, the marketing group was unsuccessful in selling their full complete vision is also a very good sign. And there are certain signs within the language they've been using that are indicative of people under a great deal of stress. And I'm talking about, you know, people that, that are under so much stress just from their own internalization of the pressures that are on them, that these people may literally keel over dead of a heart attack at any given instant of additional stress being provided. They're at that level of, of tension, seeing the language coming out. 
So I think there's something pressuring them on both sides, not only the breakdown of the narrative and their control of it out in the greater world, but also the people on the other side that are, you know, provided the money and the impetus that are just not happy with the situation. And that the situation that's driving them, I think, is some form of a disclosure. Whether we will like it afterwards is going to be uh, anybody's guess. Mm. Those are great points and an excellent breakdown because that does indicate there is some value to studying that material because obviously they put it out for a reason to steer the conversation to kind of get ahead of something. And that is the exciting part of it. Well, it, you got to be careful, though. You know, yes, it's it's interesting. I take it as clues. I'm not going to study any of their details because I don't care about the warped little twisted way in which they're stitching it together. Right. All I need to know is that I can see the stitchery and I can see the hand behind it, and then I can start thinking about that hand and why it's doing that. And thus, I don't get involved with the details because they will only lead you so far and no further. Amen. I agree with you there. We, we have talked about a hell of a lot of stuff as we start to wind down here. Is there anything else you see in the language of the, the web bot that it's picking up that might be worth a mention before we go? Uh, there is, and it's really a caution, okay? The, we're in very exciting times. Uh, we're at one of those key inflection points in history where we have an old system dying and a new one being born. As a result of that particular point in history, there will be an opportunity to create great fortunes because things will be in dynamic play as new industries are born and old ones die. And will they'll actually be allowed to die, you know, they haven't been able to uh, declare bankruptcy and fold for decades because of the government supporting them and all of this kind of thing. All that's going to go away. So the whole social order is going to change and everything in the infrastructure will change over these next 15 years. I hope that we move into the George Jetson kind of world, and that's where I'm placing my bets. And people that are also thinking that may want to look into cryptocurrencies and so forth, but be advised that in this, this uh, current state, there's also there's great opportunity, but there's also great risk potential. So you've got to be smart about this and do your research and be adult. Don't blame anybody else for screwing up from this point on. <laughs> Cheers to that. Man. Well, Cliff, I could bounce questions off you all day. I really enjoy your videos. I think the WebBot project is fascinating. I think your perspective on a lot of stuff is enlightening. Really glad I could get you here. Hopefully we can do it again in the future. Before we really go, remind the people where to follow up on what you're doing and where they can get the reports you put out or anything else you might want them to know. Sure. Uh, you can go to halfpasthuman.com and uh, pick up our reports. I ran into a wrist injury uh, earlier uh, before summer, and so I'm only doing the crypto reports at the moment, trying to let that heal. And also, that's where all the action is, and I couldn't do both and, and, and put a lot of effort into the crypto, which is required. Uh, I'll be doing that for at least the next few months as we enter into this period of time. So halfpasthuman.com and then on Cliff High channel on YouTube. Boom. Right on. Well, thanks again, man. It has been a real pleasure. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Okay, thank you much. You got it. And boom goes the dynamite, people. Cliff High. So, so glad I could finally get Cliff on. I've been interested in his WebBot predictions for a long time. I think predictive linguistics is a really interesting concept. Nobody said it was going to be an exact science, but I think it is just another item to add to your basket of things worth considering. And I'm really glad we got to spend some solid time on Antarctica and get a little deeper on that than we've really been able to lately. I don't think he mentioned it here, but I've also heard Cliff say the areas that the Nazis supposedly claimed and called New Schwabenland, these areas are airbrushed out on Google Earth when you really get down into it. And that's pretty interesting. I'm also glad we got to talk about this spiral model of our solar system. I've seen that GIF going around a whole lot. And a part of me thinks that if you're going to go with an electric universe, just a little bit different than normal kind of paradigm, that it does make sense that the sun would be moving along with everything else that seems to be moving rather than sitting put. But I still wonder about the way things line up from our perspective. Like if all stars are in motion, the Milky Way is in motion. We got these stars moving in spiral patterns all along the X, Y, and Z axis of space. How could something like Karahunge, the Armenian Stonehenge, how could it have these ancient megalithic rocks with holes carved perfectly to align with Orion's belt on the Armenian New Year? How would Karahunge maintain its alignment? I don't know, but we do have to deal with the fact that it does. Maybe eight to 12,000 years is nothing in star travel time, but it is almost half a wobble. 
that's not nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I get lost going places I've been to twice before, and I'm supposed to figure out this kind of shit. <laughs> it is fascinating, though, to hear alternative ideas on these kind of space things, and I thought Cliff broke it down really well. And there's a lot of things in his Rolodex that we didn't even get to. I would love to have him back. If you want him to come back, let's get him some good feedback so he does know you're listening. Let him know. Cliff does a lot of shows. The only way to separate which ones are worth your time and which ones aren't are the people who contact you and say, I heard you on X, Y, or Z. Go back. So let's throw them in the rotation. <laughs> I also mentioned Armenia, and I need to get another installment of that Graham Hancock tour video out. It's insane how long it's taken me. The next one even has the Buried Pyramid, but man, time just gets away from me, month to month. That's how I try to figure out what I'm doing is in these month to month chunks. And really, I just am like, okay, you got to keep up with emails and tech support, customer service for plus people and for t-shirts. You got to put out five good shows. Don't eat like shit and do one extra thing. And it's always something else like, First, we transitioned to a new top quality high-end forum. That took some time. And then I don't know. it. Oh, I think I did the Hot Ones Challenge thing and edited that video. Then I did a series of guest spots and a couple of tinfoil hats. Then I did another video where I went on a Laurel Canyon tour with Mark Devlin, followed by a month where I did an extra show with the episode with Bruce Lipton. And I also just made a server move for all three websites, which is great because I'm saving a lot of money. But it also wasn't completely smooth. And if you're having problems with the THC iPhone app, by the way, try to refresh it or clear the cache or delete it and re-download it, whatever you can to reset it. Because the server move kind of disrupted the linkage for some people, if you know what I'm saying. It's a minor thing, but I've answered like two dozen emails about it. And I think we are going to have the developer shore up some issues with the app soon when he gets some time and that's a beautiful thing and then i guess most recently i went to this science of consciousness conference and i'm trying to put something together for you this weekend i also typed up a lengthy description of my recent past life regression session and the scenes i was shown and that's on the wildcard forum if you have any interest in hearing about it it was too long of a thing to talk about in the wrap-up of a podcast, but too short to record its own thing about. So I said, screw it. This is what a forum's for. And now I'm also in the process of redoing the basic THC website. I just can't help myself. I have to tinker. But I got some data that surprised me that like 70% of all the website visitors are on mobile, which makes sense. I mean, that's how I do most of the things I do. But now I'm redoing the website to make it look as sick as I can on a cell phone because I want to stay current. I don't want to have one of these outdated websites. Not a good look for a conspiracy show. So I'm redoing that website and I think it looks pretty damn good already. The core of it does. Like if you pull up the HiresideChats.com in your mobile browser, you'll see a simple description of the show that I think is straight into the point. And then you see a link for plus, and a player that fits right on your screen. And it plays the last 10 episodes in slides. So unless you're really, really far behind, everything you need is going to be right there. And if you just subscribe to the feed on some podcast app, then you never go to the site. And I get that. But I think this is a real upgrade in terms of looking slick and modern. I'm going to flesh out the rest. And then next month, I'm getting married. And then... Armenia video chapters two and three. We're just going to knock it out. Come on. But Jesus, this really got away from me here. But I do like to touch base with you guys sometimes just about what I try to do to keep the ship on course. I got nobody to talk to about this. I have no coworkers. But it also is just a decent list of the extra things if you've missed any of them. The Mark Devlin tour was pretty cool. The Hot Ones video was torture. But what can I say? Cliff High, he knows a lot about a lot, and it was a real pleasure. As any regular listener knows, we do that. Subscribe to hear the extra hour model, $5 a month, five shows a month, plus occasional extra stuff, and lifetime access to the forums. A nice and simple model that doesn't really rely on AdSense or Patreon, but is a little more under my control, which I think is a godsend in these troubling times. 
In the Plus Show today, we talked about the Mandela Effect and the prospect of CERN and Deep State time memory manipulation projects in action. Quantum computers, the likelihood of exposing those cannibalistic, blood-siphoning, child-abusing aspects of the elite and the possibility of using any and all types of disclosure to keep those last few cards off the table. It seems like we could be getting into an era of very interesting cat and mouse with some of these things we've been speculating about for a long time. But we also talked about the four categories of alien races out there and Cliff's thoughts on Martin Armstrong and his Socrates programs, economic models compared to his own. Both are predicting a steady and consistent decline in the Western world. So we'll see. And we got into some tips and tricks for navigating the rough economic road ahead and how to get creative with it. Internet censorship and that alt media crackdown and the AdSense undercut that so many people have been talking about. A lot of THC guests recently too. So all good stuff. TheHiresideChatsPlus.com As for what's coming down the pipe, pike, whatever, uh, I think it's a month of pretty heavy woo, as Cliff would say. Not all, not all woo, but we are going back into the hard woo territory for a lot of the month of June. So be ready, and I'll see you then, friends. I've got to wrap this thing up. Holy hell. Bitcoin, by the way, I just saw it hit 3000 a coin. Can't believe that, but I am really, really loving it. All right, I've done my part. Your move, psychic leakers, Antarctic secret keepers, and architects of the coming economic collapse. Your fucking move. They built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class. But they've overcome their shyness. They destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect Between the only people 